Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your weekly Linux and open source news podcast. So in this episode, we're going to talk about Nextcloud with Nextcloud Hub 5, which is a major, major upgrade that basically turns Nextcloud into a fantastic competitor to iCloud or, or the Google Workspace. We also have some details about the cosmic desktop environment with some tiling changes uh, that might be interesting to cover. And we also have the giant Steam redesign going live, which also improves Steam a lot on Linux with the basis of scaling support, with hardware acceleration, and a lot more. We also have a roadmap for GNOME Mobile. We have some huge, huge number of updates uh, to GNOME applications. We have some more details about Plasma 6 and a lot more. So as usual, uh, all the links that I use to make this podcast are in the description. And this podcast is mainly user-supported, so if you want the show to continue, you can view all the links to support it in the show notes as well. So, let's get to it. So, let's begin with Nextcloud. Uh, Nextcloud introduced the new major version of their self-hosted cloud service, which is called Nextcloud Hub 5. Uh, Nextcloud Hub 4 is still not widely deployed. You can install it manually through a Docker image and stuff like that. But the easy install methods like the Snap, for example, are not yet updated to it. And they're already announcing the new version, uh, which adds a lot of stuff. So, of course, if you don't know what Nextcloud is, it is basically one of the only ways to build your own online ecosystem for syncing data between your phone, your desktops, and a server. It's basically the only privacy-respecting alternative to Google Workspace, like Google Docs, Google Drive, or to iCloud. Uh, you self-host it either at home, or you rent a server from someone else, like what I'm doing with Linode, or you just host it on a, on a NAS, whatever. There are plenty of ways to host it, and it gives you a bunch of different applications that you can pick and choose, and sync all that data back to your desktop. It's, it's your own ecosystem, basically. So Nextcloud Hub 5 uh, now lets any Nextcloud user, not just the administrators, create their own contact groups called circles. So it's basically like you had a, like what you had on Google+. You add certain contacts to a circle, and then you can either start a group chat with this circle or share a specific file or folder. Before, only administrators could do that and create circles that every other user in the Nextcloud server could use. Uh, but now every individual user, even if they're not managing the whole Nextcloud server, they can do this as well. They also added improvements that make it easier to link various Nextcloud resources inside of other Nextcloud apps or Nextcloud pages, depending on what you use. So you can use the Smart Picker, which is a little context menu that they added in the previous release, and have nice embedded cards for, for example, a documentation base, for a specific file, for a group chat, whatever. It's a lot easier to link to this. They also redesigned Nextcloud Notes, which is, well, their note-taking app, with a more legible three-column layout, and the mobile apps to interact with them are now also free of charge, when before uh, most of them were paid. Notes has been made a, a core app of Nextcloud, which means it's going to be shipped by default in each new Nextcloud installation. And so as a core app, the apps are now free of charge. And the note-taking experience that was exclusively Markdown before 
is now rich text. So even if you don't know any markdown syntax, you can still create a nice looking note with images, with bold text, headers, whatever, tables, whatever you want. It's, it's going to be a lot more powerful. They also improved file tagging inside of their Google Drive equivalent, and you can use these tags to build automations. Like, for example, when there's a file that is tagged, I don't know, like shared, you have the shared tag added to that file. Every time it changes, you can post a message in a specific group chat, or you can automatically convert any file that has the PDF tag into a PDF, or you can limit access to certain files to a specific group of users based on their tags. So, for example, if you have a file tag product, you can make it only available to the product team. Uh, because yes, Nextcloud is usable for an individual, but it also works for companies, organizations, whatever. There's a whole administrative side of things that you can manage adding users, managing permissions and stuff like that. They also improved their tables application, which is a data management app, sort of like what SharePoint has. Uh, let, let's think of it as an access light uh, basically, you can create tables and people can input data in it and people can then consult these databases, make searches, filter and stuff like that. So they improved filtering, searching and sorting inside these tables. They added the ability to add rich text fields. Uh, before you could only type like normal plain text. Uh, now you can add comments with rich text. And you can also import CSV and XLS files to like, add data to these tables. Or you can fill them in through an API, which is going to open up a lot more use cases for this application. Nextcloud Chat, though, is probably the app that received the most improvements. Uh, first, when you're just in a, in a text chat, you can see who is currently typing, just like every other text or chat app that you've ever seen. You can now change the icons for your group chats to identify them easier. You can mention a whole group in a chat as well. And you can get instant message translations if you're working into a, in a multilingual context. In terms of video chat, you can now replace your video background with a predefined image. So they're going to basically like cut you out of the picture and, and slap you onto a, a normal background. Or you can blur the background you have in your current room. And you can also add call reactions during a video chat using emojis, which I don't really know why this gets implemented everywhere because I really don't see a use case for it. But... It exists now. And if you have an on-premise AI, like a speech-to-text translator, you can transcribe a whole video call automatically using that as well. And one of the best features as well is that it's possible to create a Nextcloud talk room for a calendar appointment. For each calendar appointment you create, you can automatically have a Nextcloud video chat a link embedded in it. So when you invite someone over to, to join you for an appointment, they will receive that link. And so people can now join you in a video chat automatically. You don't have to create a room, send them the link afterwards. It's way easier this way. And they also added the ability for people to book appointments with you specifically in your calendar. So you can share a link with someone and they can then pick a date and a time and book an appointment that will be added onto your calendar, which is really cool. And finally, in Nextcloud Office, which is their online integrated office suite, which is based on Collabora Office, so it's basically LibreOffice, but online in a web browser, you now get the ability to mention other people in a document, and you get some quick templates. And there are a ton of smaller improvements as well. There's integration with Microsoft Teams to share Nextcloud files more easily. There's an integration with Notion, the 
super high-end note-taking application that a lot of people talked about recently or a few years ago, there's a lot of things on top of what I mentioned. So seriously, if you look at it these days, Nextcloud is a complete replacement for the Google ecosystem or for iCloud. The only thing that it doesn't give you is an email address. You have a, an online mail client in Nextcloud, but you do have to have your own email address to, to add in. But apart from that, it does everything that Google does or that iCloud does, and it does it just as well or even sometimes better, and it doesn't track you, it doesn't log any data, and you can self-host it. Honestly, if you're privacy-minded and you're still stuck on Google or, or iCloud, you should definitely take a look at Nextcloud and try to set it up on a NAS, on a home server, or just rent the smallest instance uh, on a VPS provider and try it out. It's really, really fantastic. It's what I use to run this whole channel, all my private photos, documents, sharing anything, all the podcasts are also stored in there for backup. All my Patreon casts for Patreon supporters are hosted on Nextcloud. It's just fantastic. Now, let's talk about Cosmic, the new desktop environment that will replace the custom GNOME that System76 sh ships in uh, PopOS. Uh, they announced a few more changes for that. It, it's not as complete a blog post as what they usually have. Uh, there are less things that, that they've accomplished uh, last month. Uh, but they also worked on the tiling, which is interesting because that was one of the major differentiating features of, of Pop! OS compared to another GNOME-based distro. It was the auto-tiling feature, which with the press of a key lets you move from floating windows to a complete tiling window manager, which is really cool. And so they're going to simplify things a little bit in Cosmic, but not as in dumbed down, just making it more accessible and easier to use. So for now, you can toggle auto-tiling, but then if you want to change the windows easily with your keyboard, uh, you can move them around easily enough with a mouse, but if you want to use the keyboard to shift them, move them, group them, you have to enter an adjustment mode, which then lets you use keyboard shortcuts to move the windows. So you have an extra keyboard combination to do on top of activating the tiling, and it's not super fluid. In the future Cosmic Desktop, this mode will be completely removed, and you'll just have regular keyboard shortcuts to move the windows where you want them to go. So for example, if you press Shift, Super, and the arrow keys, you can move your window to the next slot, you can replace another window, which will then move to the previous place, you can group them on top of each other, stack them, and you can use Super plus an arrow key to simply select the window that you want to interact with. When before the adjustment mode lets you select a window and then choose where you wanted to position it, and then you confirm that. Now you just have the currently selected window and you just use your keyboard to move it. It's, it's just easier. And to make sure that it all stays legible and that you understand where your window is going to go, they've added outlines around the windows that will be moved or will be replaced with the ones you're moving. There's some sort of a semi-transparent dark gray outline around it. And there are simple animations uh, with windows like scaling down a little bit or scaling up a little bit depending on where you're moving them and what will happen uh, when you press the keys. So this should make using the keyboard to get a specific tiling layout way more efficient, way easier to understand as well. And they already have a complete list of the keyboard shortcuts that they plan to have. Uh, these might change in the future, but you can see the various possibilities that you have uh, with this tiling mode. And for mouse users on the tiling mode, there are also some improvements. 
because stacked window groups, or basically in the auto-tiling mode, you can drag a window on top of one another and then they are basically stacked with tabs. So you have tabs for each window that is in the same group and you can switch uh, from one to the other easily without having to tile them all visible at all times. And so the, the tiled windows will have a small icon in the top corner that lets you drag it with your mouse. So you can move the whole window group at the same time uh, to, I don't know, like make it floating or, or put it on the other side of the display or whatever else you want. The selected tab inside of a group will also be easier to identify. The title of the tab will be colored with the usual like System76 Pop! OS Cyan color, this very bright blue that they use. And that's about it for tiling. But that's those are a lot of changes. And I think it's going to make it easier to actually interact with your layout. The auto-tiling was great to immediately place your windows where you wanted them to be. But then with a mouse, it was pretty easy to change that layout and put the windows where you wanted them. But with the keyboard, it wasn't that simple. Uh, you really had to understand the adjustment mode and try to understand where you were going to move things. I think with direct keyboard shortcuts and small outlines, it will be way easier to see where things are going and what's going to happen when you let go of the keys. Now, of course, there's not just tiling. They also uh, rebased their widget library, the libcosmic library, which is basically like libadvita, but for developing apps that look coherent on the Cosmic desktop. They rebased that library on the latest version of the Iced toolkit, which is a Rust-based graphical toolkit that they use to build their applications. And they also updated their compositor to integrate the animations that the Cosmic team has been working on. They have a whole animation framework that lets you, well, animate inside of a window or animate windows as they're maximized, moved, resized. And so with their updated compositor, it's now easier to implement these animations. So these, as always, are cool changes uh, to Cosmic. I really wish they had a stable like alpha or, or, or beta soon so I can start playing around with it because it really looks pretty good. But I have a lot of questions about how well it will integrate with, for example, GNOME and Libadvita apps and stuff like that because you're basically building a new desktop shell, but they're not really building desktop apps to go along with it. Uh, so you're going to have a shell that has a very distinct Pop! OS look with the dark grays, the cyan, the, the muted yellows. And side by side with that, you'll have GNOME or Libadvita apps, which are the ones that are going to look more in line with what Pop! OS is doing. And they're just not going to look right. So they're going to ship... Oh, that's my question. Are they going to ship a distribution with their whole revamped shell that looks amazing, all brand new, all based on super modern technology, really looking to the future, basically, but then add some apps that just don't feel like they're part of the system at all. Or are they going to take some steps to try and integrate them better? That's really what I want to know, because for me, even if the shell is amazing, if all the apps look completely disjointed and don't look like they're part of the system, then it's not super interesting to me. I'd rather have the more coherent GNOME experience that I have currently. Now, let's talk about uh, Linux Mobile, or specifically GNOME Mobile. There was a Linux Mobile Hackfest in Berlin last week, uh, where they defined a roadmap for GNOME Mobile. Basically, they listed all the issues and all the work that is still necessary to have a complete, let's say, GNOME Mobile OS, a GNOME OS for your phone, that is complete and usable as a daily driver. 
so there are a lot of things to do on the app platform, on the GNOME mobile shell itself, on supporting portals to install apps through Flatpak and make sure that they work correctly, and also bridging the app gap. Uh, they listed a lot of apps that people will want to have or will want to use on their mobile phones. Like, for example, an email client like Geary, uh, your banking apps, which is a crucial thing for most people. If, if you have like the strong authentication enabled with your bank, you can't use SMS anymore as a two-factor authentication. Generally, you have confirmation codes and you have to use the mobile app to confirm a money transfer or a payment online. And so if you don't have that on your phone, it's way harder to, to basically use your phone. They also want to have an app for YouTube and a note and a to-do app that can sync uh, with your desktop, which is an important thing. Now, they also talked about uh, building image-based operating systems for phones, uh, kind of like what Silverblue is doing or Vanilla OS is doing, which definitely makes a lot of sense for a mobile operating system because your phone is a phone. Like, yeah, sure, if it's a Linux phone, it can do, probably do a bit more advanced stuff than Android or iOS. But at its core, it still needs to work super reliably every day. It's your, like, your computer in your pocket. It needs to be super stable. And so an image-based OS makes a lot of sense for this kind of stuff. And also for security as well. Uh, they also looked at what could be their main distro uh, to build, like this GNOME OS for mobile. Uh, what base could they use? And they couldn't identify an obvious winner right now. Uh, Debian has the community and the support, but it's just too old for what they want to do. Uh, they really need the latest drivers and Linux kernel because it's on phones, not on computers. And phone drivers are just starting to be mainlined into the Linux kernel as Android is trying to push developers to use less embedded encapsuled proprietary drivers plugged into a sort of condom, a GPL condom that Google has built. They want to use drivers that are mainlined in the Linux kernel, but this work has just started. So you do need the latest, the very latest kernel to make sure you have good support. And on the other hand, the other interesting option would be post-market OS, but they don't support system D from what I've read, which means that a lot of features that they want to build that depend on systemd won't be accessible at all. Uh, they plan to use it for encryption, for example, and stuff like that. And so basically the only option that would be suitable in terms of technologies is GNOME OS. But GNOME OS is not a distro for everyone. It's a testing distro for people to build apps for GNOME and test the new GNOME technology. So it has a very small community. Not many people run it in, for a like as a day-to-day -day system. And so it's not suitable as well. So they don't really have uh, the base that they want yet uh, to build this GNOME mobile OS. Now, they also talked about extending the MPRIS protocol which basically is the thing that lets your system control audio playback for apps. Uh, like in GNOME or KDE, when you click the little audio applet, uh, you can like pause uh, music or you can pause a video or move to the next track. This is using that protocol. And for now, they just realized that a lot of apps need different controls. Uh, for a video, you won't need the same controls as for audio. And for a podcast, maybe you just want a button to skip ahead 10 seconds and not a button to skip to the next episode, which means that they have to extend this protocol to let applications tell the system which buttons they actually need and what to display in the system UI. 
So something that something like that would actually be very interesting not only for mobile but also for desktop Linux. So if they can get it done, it would be really cool. And so that's about it for the GNOME mobile OS. It's still very, very early days and we're probably a lot of years away from being able to daily drive a Linux phone, uh, that's for sure. But it's nice to see that, that they're taking into consideration the fact that a phone is for a lot of people an extension of their computing. It's like basically a pocket computer where they can find what they usually work on on their laptop or desktop, which means that you need syncing. You need applications that know where you were on your computer so you can resume your work on your phone and vice versa. And the fact that they're taking this into consideration is cool. And it's also nice to see that there's still enthusiasm around Linux mobile. Of course, it's not a big thing and it probably will never be huge in, in the world. I'm not talking about Android, which I know is Linux based. I'm talking about a pure Linux distribution on a mobile phone with a mobile interface that is free and open source entirely. We don't have that. It probably will never happen for the masses, but if there's still enthusiasm for it, it means we might reach it at some point, which is really cool. Now, still on the topic of GNOME, but on the desktop. Uh, this week, there are a ton of updates to GNOME applications. Uh, first, we have Nautilus adopting the most recent Libadvita widgets. And there's work being done on improving the search uh, in Nautilus. Specifically, now that we have a normal functioning grid view, when you search, you, you were still moved back to the list view, and which is not what people want if they specifically selected grid view. So now it will also support grid view, which, like, yeah, it's a feature that should have been there uh, since the beginning, but it finally is. Uh, Libedvita also deprecated a few older components, uh, now that they have introduced better replacements. Uh, so the leaflet view, for example, that handled pages inside of applications has a replacement, and so is now deprecated. And the default apps panel uh, in the GNOME settings was also revamped slightly using the new uh, Libadvita widget list. But to me, it looks worse because yes, the controls look better, but you also lose the app icons for the default app list, which I think is a shame because it helped you identify the app you wanted to select way faster. Now, in terms of applications, uh, we have Eyedropper, which is the color picker. It has a new beta with better visual feedback when selecting a color or entering a color. And it also lets you search for your, the colors that you've stored from the activity overview in GNOME. So that's actually pretty cool if you're a graphics designer. Uh, EarTag, the audio file tag editor, now also lets you rename files using a pattern, which is important if you want to bulk rename uh, your, your music collection. And it can also identify files using a cust ID. There's also Design, which is a 2D computer-assisted drawing app, a CAD app, uh, which now supports line types. You can now draw dotted lines, dashed lines, and more. And you can also export to various DXF file format versions, uh, so it should be better compatible with other programs. iPlan, which is the task manager slash to-do list, uh, got a new version as well. It has a new design for task rows. It now shows one full week per calendar page, uh, so it's easier to plan your week. And it lets you pick a due date more efficiently. You get options for picking uh, this day, this task is due today, or this task doesn't have a date, right on top of the date picker. So it's way easier to pick those options. And it also now has the ability to auto start in the backgrounds, which also enables it uh, to send you reminders right off the bat uh, for tasks that you set up reminders for. 
But there's also a new app called Footage, which lets you quickly resize, mute, flip, rotate, trim, and crop a video, and also export it to another format, and you can also change the frame rate of the video. It's already available on FlatHub, and it's a nice thing to have in your toolkit if you usually interact with a lot of smaller videos that you want to publish to a website or that you want to share with other people. Very, very useful. And there's also Wildcard. Uh, if you're a developer and you've been practicing with regular expressions and you always struggle to understand how they're going to work because they can be a pain, uh, well, Wildcard lets you type your regular expressions and then underneath there's some boilerplate text which will let you see what your regular expression is actually selecting or interacting with, which I think is going to be very helpful for a lot of people. Now, on top of that, there are updates to Telegram, which is the Telegram client, which is also now renamed Paperplane instead of Telegram. I don't know why. Uh, there's updates to Graphs, which is the data plotting and manipulation app, and to Gradients, which is the LibAdvita theming manager. You can think of Gradients as basically material U for Android, but for the GNOME desktop and with much, much better colors than Material U, which looks like ugh, disgusting. And you also have updates to Denaro, the personal finance manager, and to a lot of other smaller apps and development tools. It was a huge, huge week uh, in the GNOME apps world. It's really insane how fast things are moving since they introduced LibAdvita. It's really impressive. Like the, the app ecosystem of GNOME has basically overtaken completely the, uh, the Elementor iOS app ecosystem that used to be one of the most complete and coherent in terms of smaller apps. Now GNOME has completely like overpassed it, surpassed it, and like the KDE app ecosystem is left in the dust basically. They have a lot of applications, but they're mostly very old and, and very clumsy. Uh, GNOME is really where it's at in terms of, of Linux apps these days. They're really, really fantastic. Now, talking about KDE, uh, we can now look forward to a much better digital signing experience on Ocular. And I'm not talking about just stamping your, your PNG signature on top of a document. This still necessitates a lot of cumbersome steps to create a, a custom stamp uh, that you can add to Ocular and then draw on every document afterwards. Uh, I'm talking about signing digitally with a certificate. Uh, the, the flow for signing has been improved. Uh, first, the option to digitally sign a document is now visible directly in the main hamburger menu of Ocular, which is way easier to find. And, and also, you can now add a lot of metadata to your signature, which seems to be required uh, for a lot of like certificate signed documents. And you can also add a background image to signify that, yes, you've signed the thing, which is really, really much better. Uh, Dolphin, the file manager, also gained the ability to perform a double-click on a tab, which will duplicate it, which is an extra feature, why not? And dialogues in the system monitor were ported to Kirigami, which is KDE's framework for building apps that work on mobile and on desktop. It's a really powerful framework uh, with apps, uh, I think Calendar, for example, uses it, and it's basically your all-in-one to-do list, contact manager, and calendar in the same place. It looks awesome, it's super simple to use. So it, it's a good framework. And so dialogues for the system monitor now use the same technology. So they'll look better, they will resize more nicely. They'll, they'll just look like a modern KDE app, basically. And in terms of Plasma 6 work, uh, they're moving forwards nicely. They're refactoring the widgets API that lets you place all your little widgets either in your panels or on the desktop. Uh, they want to modernize it and to make it less error prone uh, for widget developers. 
Uh, so basically, they're probably trying to encourage people to make more and better widgets. And since most widgets would have had to be ported to Qt6 anyway uh, with Plasma 6, it's a good time to work on a revamp of the widget API as well to make sure that everything is ship shape uh, when they ship Plasma. Because a lot of bugs in Plasma were linked to the panels or the widgets that you embedded in them. And I'm pretty sure that a malfunctioning widget could take down your whole panel at some point. Uh, so yeah, having something that works better in that regard is always, well, better for everybody. Now, if you want to follow the development of Plasma 6, they have a new wiki page that shows all the current issues that they're working on and all the notable changes in Plasma 6. So you can follow along and see if we're close or not close at all. So obviously the KDE world is way less active uh, these days than it used to be or than like GNOME is. Uh, but that's because most efforts are on Plasma 6 and porting the apps and the desktop and the widgets. So it's normal. And I personally cannot wait to get my hands on Plasma 6 once it's stable enough. I hope they still have a few surprises left in store uh, for what they want to bring. I wouldn't be against a big redesign of the Breeze theme, which I think, yes, they improved it over the life cycle of Plasma 5, but it still looks a bit clunky in my opinion. Uh, it's it's not extremely legible, especially in dark mode. And I, I wish they would just go over it a little bit and try to modernize it a bit. Because, yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of how it looks by default. But that's very subjective. Now, it seems that YouTube is cracking down on third-party frontends, uh, notably Invidious. Uh, if you don't know what Invidious is, it's basically another website where you can watch YouTube videos but you're watching them on Invidious instead of YouTube and you're not being tracked, you don't see ads and you, you basically have a neutral video watching experience there. So YouTube sent them a letter, a cease and desist letter basically, telling them to shut the project down within seven days because it allegedly violates the terms and conditions of YouTube's API. Now, of course, the Invidious developers did not answer this request uh, but they said publicly that they do not use the YouTube API. Uh, they never agreed to these terms and conditions. And so basically this letter is completely meaningless to them. Uh, what Invidious does is not use the YouTube API to fetch specific videos. They act like a web browser. Uh, they load the web page containing the video. They load all the essential data to play that video and they display it. But they don't use the YouTube API. So they said they wouldn't do anything for now to respond to YouTube but that it might just be the start uh, of things. And so they're already looking for an EU-based or France-based organization to help them defend themselves if YouTube takes legal action. And probably they're looking for an organization in the EU or in France because they're probably the only ones who care about privacy and, and stuff like that. So maybe that's why. Or maybe Invidious is based in the EU at its core. I don't know. I don't really know. And... I mean, I can understand both viewpoints. Uh, at some point, YouTube hosts the video. They have to have the servers and the bandwidth, and they're paying for it. That's why you have ads on YouTube and YouTube Premium. It's not just because they want your data. It's because they have to pay for these giant servers. As far as I know, YouTube is still not profitable. Uh, it's We can't really know anymore since the Alphabet rework, but it's slotted in with other things, and you can basically assume that other Google services pay for a lot of the YouTube hosting and, and stuff like that. And so third-party frontends, like NVIDIA's, they're going to use the bandwidth, but they're not going to pay for it, which I can understand why it's annoying. But at the same time, 
Invidious doesn't seem to use any explicitly forbidden methods, so there's no reason to harass them or threaten them with legal action. If you don't want third-party frontends to access your videos, well, you have to implement something in the YouTube website that prevents that to work. You, you can't just tell them, you have no right to look at our website, because that's how the web works. Now, another piece of news about System76, way less glorious than talking about their cosmic desktop, uh, they had a big user data leak uh, that started in March 2022 and was resolved at the end of May 2023, so a full year, a bit more than a year. Uh, no credentials or credit card numbers were exposed because, as you know, System76 sells laptops, so there could have been billing information. Uh, there's no billing information exposed, but uh, consumer names, physical addresses, email addresses, and phone numbers were still compromised. And what seems to have happened is that what was in the server's memory at a fixed point in time was added to the server cache and was thus visible when you looked at the source code of the web page you were visiting. Uh, so there was user data for a lot of users that visited or logged into the, the System76 website to, I don't know, check on their order or something. And if you visited the site, while this data was still in the server's cache, you could access it uh, just by viewing the source code of the website. It was obfuscated and hidden in a long file name or script name, but you could still get it. So any archive of their website over that period also will have that data available in it. Uh, the Internet Archive was contacted, and they already removed that data, but other website archiving services, which I'm sure exist, might still have it. Now, the only misuse of this user data that they're aware of is that some people seem to have received email spams based off of it, but it's really hard to tell if something else has been done with this kind of data. And, of course, System76 put some measures in place to avoid this repeating, uh, they have scans that alert them if a similar pro problem happens again. They're conducting manual inspections to detect any data that shouldn't be there uh, in, the, in the website's public source. And they're also going to move to a more static model for their website instead of the server-side rendering that they did before, which should reduce the risk of that happening again. So it's not great news, but thankfully it's not like crucial information like logins, passwords and stuff like that or, cred or credit cards. Uh, and at least they came clean once they had fixed the problem, which, I mean, it's, it's, it's not great, but it's decent. Now, the mobile client for Thunderbird is also moving along nicely. Uh, it's still like K9 Mail, basically, that they're working on over and over again to turn it into Thunderbird Mail for Android. And so this month they shared a progress report specifically to explain what kind of technologies they're going to move to and the little revamp that they did for the account creation workflow. Uh, they had already worked on revamping the email list, making some buttons the default, and changing a little bit how the, the UI worked and was presented. Uh, now they're working on letting users, well, set up an account, which is sort of important for an email app on your phone, or an email app, period. Uh, so now it integrates Thunderbird's auto-configuration service. It basically detects the settings for your email account based on your email address. So if you enter a Gmail address, it will detect the Gmail settings. If you enter a custom IMAP, uh, well, I don't know, like a, a self-hosted email address like mine, for example, it will auto-detect your IMAP and SMTP settings. And they also started transitioning the app's UI from the older Android XML layouts to Jetpack Compose, which seems to be like the new thing people use to build apps on Android. 
It seems to be easier to work with and it does result in less UI bugs, at least that's what they say, so it's pretty nice. Uh, they also adopted the atomic design principles, which basically means that they are going to break down the UI into small components. For example, this is an X button, this is a cancel button, this is a list view, this is an email field, stuff like that. And they are going to combine these elements to form the layouts and the pages in the app. And obviously this should result in a less, in a more coherent, not a less coherent, a more coherent UI and faster interface building inside of the app as well. And so they're preparing to release a new beta version of K9 Mail that packs all the new account setup pages, which honestly from the screenshots, they like they don't scream Thunderbird to me. They 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 just look like a white background with black buttons. It's not like there's nothing specific. It's too small a page to judge a redesign of an application uh, on. They also reverted the default behavior of the reply button to just reply instead of reply to all, which that change didn't seem to please many people. Uh, they still want to find a way to let people configure that without forcing users to dig through the settings. Uh, but yeah, they haven't found a solution yet. I think you can just expose that, like maybe the first time you hit reply or reply to all, like having a button, like would you want to make reply to all the default uh, for all replies and boom, you're done. Like you don't need a setting for that. Uh, well, you do need a setting, but you, you can also have a nice flow in the main user interface. Like by default, be just reply and if somebody clicks on reply to all ask them if they want to set that as the default now i say this every time but i really really like where thunderbird is going they have a clear focus on user experience revamping their ui without losing any power it's really cool and it might help shift that preconceived notion that free and open source apps or, or just gratis apps apps that are free of charge are just less good or less well-designed than paid alternatives because that hasn't been the case for a long while and if Thunderbird can also join that club of well-designed free apps, it would be really nice. Okay, and now we're gonna finish this podcast with the gaming news. So the biggest item here is probably the new Steam update. You technically already have it. Uh, if you have Steam installed and you launched it recently, you're gonna get an update and it has a big redesign. A lot of the code for the user interface is now shared uh, between the desktop Steam client, the new big picture mode, and uh, the code used on the Steam Deck specifically. So things should be easier to work on in the future and the UI might be able to change faster than what it did for the past, I don't know, 10 years or something. And so this new redesign comes with a revamped navigation header, the store, library, community things, uh, the menus that pop down from there, uh, look better as well. All the dialogues, the menus, the fonts, they've all been improved to look a bit more modern. Uh, the in-game overlay has been completely rebuilt as well. You now have separate windows for viewing your achievements. You have a window for the web browser. You have a new notes app that syncs your notes per game between your computers. It's rich text so you can take notes while you're visiting something. If you have a game that is like not on rails, not very guided. You can take notes about the things that you're visiting, that you're seeing, uh, where you want to go back to uh, in a while or, or just how you defeated this type of enemy for reference in the future. It's really cool. And you can also pin any of these elements and they will stay visible over on top of the game uh, while you play. So you could, for example, pin a specific achievement or a guide in a web browser to get those achievements, or your friends list, or friend chat, whatever, you can pin whatever you want. And if you use a controller, uh, the Steam Deck configurator that lets you change the layout and map buttons specifically, 
is now also part of the overlay on the desktop client, which is also really cool. And for Linux users and macOS users, the Steam desktop client is now hardware accelerated, which means it will use your GPU to render things, which not only saves battery, uh, because the GPU is made to render things, not the CPU, and also it will feel way faster in terms of scrolling and, and like hovering over items and navigating the UI. I can confirm even on an NVIDIA GPU on Linux, it works much, much better than it did before. Now, if you feel that there's no change, you can go check in the settings in the interface tab to enable the hardware acceleration uh, if it's not already on by default. It's definitely worth the update, but it's not like you have a choice with Steam because when there's an update, you get it and that's it. Uh, so you're going to have to move to it anyways. There's no choice. Now, on top of that, uh, Valve also worked on a beta for the Steam desktop client that brings improved scaling of Steam. They already had added something. I think in the new update, you can already have uh, scaling support, but now you'll be able to define it manually. If you want a specific scaling for Steam, you can pass it an environment variable and force a specific factor like 1.25, 1.5, 2, stuff like that, uh, which like that's good because Steam, for example, on my 16 inch laptop, uh, I don't use fractional scaling because it's just not great on GNOME these days and not yet anyways. And honestly, with a 16-inch display running at 1600p, I can't get by with just tacking up the font like I go into the accessibility settings and I put the font at 1.05 instead of 1 and that's it for me. But Steam doesn't detect that setting. So I could basically set the Steam desktop client to be at 1.25 and have it like correctly sized compared to the rest of my desktop, which is really nice. And last improvement to Steam as well. Uh, now, if you remove a non-Steam game from your Steam library, uh, it will also now remove the shader cache files and all the compatibility data through Proton and stuff like that that was previously left in place. So it's going to be cleaner to handle these types of games. Now, uh, still on gaming, for AMD GPU users, there are some good news. Uh, with Mesa 23.2, so the next, versions of, the next version of the Mesa drivers, ray tracing will be enabled by default for AMD GPUs. It was only doable manually previously for certain specific titles, but now it should support any game that has the option for ray tracing, which is really nice. But there's a caveat, performance for now is apparently really not that great compared to what you would find on Windows. They know of the issue, they're working on it to improve the pipeline, but for now, yeah, don't expect to turn it and have good performance. Like generally you can't expect to have good performance with ray tracing on, but there you're really going to see the performance dip a lot. And finally, we have a new release of Wine this week, version 8.10. This one makes sure that all the transitions from the PE executable format to the Unix instructions that we use go through the syscall interface, probably to increase traceability and help with debugging, but I'm not sure why exactly they want to do that. Uh, there are also improvements for mouse cursor clipping and support for virtual memory placeholders. And they also fixed 13 bugs, mostly for desktop apps this time for Sigwin, MicroTorrent, and a bunch of older apps like MSN Messenger, Adobe Premiere Pro CS3, or Quicken 2010. And that's about it for this episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to learn more about a specific topic, all the links are in the show notes. And all the links to support the podcast are in the show notes as well. So don't hesitate to check them out if you want to support the show. 
So as always, thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!